Welcome to the St. Richard's Episcopal Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Rev. Cameron Nations. For more information, please visit strichards.org. Well, good morning. So, okay, so we've all heard the joke, or at least I'm pretty sure we've all heard the joke, that all you have to do to make God laugh is to tell him your plans. That's right. At 8 o'clock, nobody responded. It's probably just because it was 8 o'clock. Um, so I was like, oh, no, maybe no one's heard this joke. But right, okay, so, yeah, if you want to make God laugh, you just tell him your plans, okay? Because, of course, our plans, as we know, are at best aspirations, uh, and we've learned almost no lesson more clearly over the past couple of years than that very thing, right? That our plans that we may have laid out so perfectly can always be sidelined by something beyond our control, can't they? Life takes some very interesting and unexpected turns, but somehow, as we talk a lot about here at St. Richard's, somehow God is at work in the midst of it all, even if sometimes it's difficult for us to see where at the moment. But if we know where to look, if we keep our eyes and hearts open, God is there. God is at work in the midst of our mess, and each mess is an opportunity for God's grace to be at work in a profound way. I can't think of a better illustration of this, a better parable for the way that God's grace is at work in uncertain circumstances than the life of Joseph, who we read about this morning in our reading in Genesis. Now, y'all remember the story. This is not Joseph, Jesus' dad, right? This is, uh, this is a different Joseph. Uh, Joseph was the son of Jacob, who was so favored by his father that he's given that uh, famous coat, right? The coat of many colors, a technicolor dream coat, uh, as uh, the, the musical may make us believe. Uh, we're talking about that Joseph. He was so favored by his father, he's given uh, this famous coat. And his brothers, overcome with jealousy, they throw him into a pit and they sell him into slavery. And that is some sibling rivalry, if I've ever seen it, right? Um, so they throw him into a pit, they sell him into slavery. Eventually, he finds himself the head servant in the household of a powerful Egyptian military leader named Potiphar. Okay, so okay, all right, that's maybe situations improving, though nothing has so far gone according to plan. My guess is that's not exactly what Joseph uh, had in mind for his life. But he finds himself the head servant in this household of this military leader, and just when things seem to be going better, Joseph is framed by Potiphar's wife for a crime that he doesn't commit, and he finds himself thrown in jail. Another curveball. While in prison, Joseph spends years building a reputation amongst the other prisoners and the wardens as a responsible and capable leader, and uh, he also has this special gift. turns out to be quite handy for him and for actually a whole lot of other people, which is that Joseph can interpret dreams. Okay, Joseph can interpret dreams. And because of his ability to interpret dreams, Joseph ends up getting out of prison and finds himself interpreting dreams for the most powerful person on earth, which was Pharaoh, right, Pharaoh. Now, because of Joseph's interpretations, Pharaoh names Joseph his senior advisor. It's the highest position in Egypt outside of just being Pharaoh himself. 
okay? And this is where Joseph finds himself. And I guarantee you, he had no idea that this was going to be in the cards, right? This was not part of his plan. Now, one of the predictions that Joseph makes uh, is a very consequential one. He predicts that there would be seven years of abundant harvests followed by seven years of famine. And he instructs Pharaoh, therefore, to stock up on excess grain accordingly so that when the famine comes, they're ready, right? They've got a huge storehouse of grain and it's not going to make a difference whether or not they have the famine. So Pharaoh follows the plan and sure enough, the famine comes just as Joseph said that it would. Now in a plot twist here, uh, or a sort of... Um, consequential turn of events, Joseph's family is hit hard by this famine, and they are in trouble. It seems that, like so many others who didn't have the benefit of Joseph's foresight, uh, their plans that they'd had did not include a seven-year famine. Uh, and, you know, in reading this story again in preparation for the sermon, I thought, well, how different they must not be catastrophizers like me because I would have been like, oh, we're definitely going to have a famine. There's got to be a famine. Um, seven great harvests, you know that's coming to an end, right? <laughs> we can't keep that one going. So they, they were, must have not been catastrophizers like me. They thought, oh, we're going to keep having good harvests, okay? But I tend to, to expect the worst, okay? Um, so they, they are in trouble. They don't have any grain. And in fact, they don't have grain for a year before they decide, look, we, we've got to do something about this, and they hear that the Egyptians have excess grain. So in the second year of the famine, uh, they, the Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt to go and buy some. Now when they arrive, they go to speak to Joseph, but of course they don't know that it's Joseph. They didn't know that the person who's now kind of second in command in Egypt is their kid brother they'd thrown in the pit and sold into slavery all those years ago. Presumably, Joseph looks quite different, and they don't have pictures, photographs, right? So Joseph's there. They have no idea it's him. But they go to speak to him to try to get some, buy some grain. And there's some back and forth in the story at this point that for the sake of time, I'll leave for you to read on your own if you are interested. I highly recommend it. But in the end, we come to today's scene, what we read in today's reading from Genesis, where Joseph cannot hold it in any longer. And in a moment of intense emotion, he finally reveals his identity to his brothers. Now, after all that Joseph had been through, what might you expect his reaction to be here? Or, or what might you expect him to do? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but like if I had had all of this happen to me, if, if my whole life had been set on this wild course of events because my brothers had to, like just literally cast me away, I'm not sure that I would be like Joseph is right here, okay? I might be vengeful. At the most benign, I might just be a little bit petty. You know, I might make them kind of like work for the grain. Oh, you want some grain? Well, it looks like prices have just doubled. You know, like I might at least do something. Because the tides have turned here, right? Joseph wields all the power. All the cards are in Joseph's hands. And his brothers don't even know it's him. I mean, really and truly, he, he's got every single thing in place. Revenge is his if he wants it. He could, if he wanted to, let his family suffer. 
He could send them away. He could say, hey, well, sorry, guys, grain's only for the Egyptians, so y'all got to beat it. And if he were to do that, I mean, he's the one who made the prediction. He knows that they're in year two of a seven-year famine. There's still going to be years of this. If he sent them away, they wouldn't just suffer. It's likely that probably many of his family might even die of starvation. He could choose to let them reap what they sowed in a way, right? But instead, what does Joseph do? Well, instead of of all of that, Joseph decides to have mercy on them. He decides to help them. Joseph deems that there is nothing served in getting his revenge except for more suffering. That's it. That's all that would happen there. And and, and so by making that decision that he's not going to perpetuate the violence that was perpetuated against him, he ends this cycle of violence that his brothers had inflicted upon him. And he illustrates for us in this most powerful way the teachings we see uh, of Jesus as we just read in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Difficult teachings about loving our enemies. Teachings that Sometimes we don't know what to do with teachings about what it means to turn the other cheek. If someone takes your your shirt, give them the other one. Give them another one. Don't ask for it back. And in this case, the enemies that Joseph is loving are incredibly close to home, aren't they? They're his literal family. It's an actual family. He does what Jesus instructs and leaves the ultimate judgment to God And as I said, in so doing, lives out this challenging ethic that we hear Jesus teach us in Luke's gospel. Now, I'll say more about that in a minute, but Joseph instructs his brothers to go, in the the Genesis tells us, he instructs his brothers to go out to get the rest of the family and to bring them to Egypt. So I'm not just going to give you grain, I'm actually going to provide you a safe place here, go get the family, bring them, they can settle in, they won't go hungry, it'll be fine. And he says these words that stick with me every time I read this passage. He says, do not be distressed or angry because you sold me here. I mean, what is, what is, why is Joseph saying that? Don't be distressed to the people who sold him into slavery, right? But the reason he's saying this is because the brothers are probably expecting him once he divulges his identity. They're expecting revenge, right? Like, oh, yikes, this is Joseph. We're doomed. You know, because not only does Joseph have all the grain, like I said, Joseph has all the power. If he really wanted to, my guess is Joseph could have snapped his fingers, some guards would have appeared, and in very cinematic fashion, brothers would have been taken off somewhere, right? That could have happened. But Joseph says, don't be distressed or angry because you sold me here. And then he says this, which again blows my mind every time I read it. For God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me here to preserve life. It was not you who sent me, Joseph says, but God. And that's a challenge to me. It's a challenge to me because, as I mentioned, I would want to be vengeful here. I would want to be vengeful, and I'd feel righteous about it, too. (laughs) I'd feel really good. It would have been years. Like, I'd have been daydreaming about that. they just wait. If they ever come wandering back here, you know, the minute that I got appointed a second in command in Egypt, I'd be like, yes, you know? <laughs> and Joseph doesn't do any of that. 
You see, Joseph is able to see what I would struggle to see, which is to see God at work in the midst of his life so profoundly that even after all that had transpired, he sees an opportunity to take care of his family during a season of hardship and to live out the commandment that God gives us, to love our neighbors as ourselves, even when it means loving our enemies. He understands what it means to love like God loves us. And even in the midst of the evils and trials of this world, I want to say that there is always an opportunity for that love to break through. Cruelty, in whatever form, is always a choice that we make, though there's a lot of times in our world where it seems like cruelty is the only thing we can do. We have no other choice. But I will tell you, cruelty is always, always a choice. Now, I do want to pause here briefly because the idea of turning the other cheek, of loving your enemies, it can sometimes be used actually to inflict cruelty on someone. I didn't say this at 8 o'clock, but I wish I would have. Sometimes we can take this teaching and say that, some, that, that somehow forgiveness, finding grace in the midst of trial like Joseph does, somehow just erases what had happened before. It lets you off the hook. But that's not at all actually what forgiveness is. And you see that modeled here in Joseph's wrestling with what to do. It's not that his brothers being cruel to him doesn't matter anymore, but it's that in forgiving them, Joseph opens up a new horizon of possibility for their relationship and reconciliation. It doesn't mean it wasn't horrific what they did to him. It doesn't mean that they should have never done it. It just means that Joseph has shown them and given them another way to be in relationship with one another. So, his brothers may have sold him into slavery, but God delivered Joseph to be almost as mighty as Pharaoh. And along the way, Joseph's life took so many twists and turns, and in multiple points, it seemed that things really couldn't get much worse. But God was there in the midst of the mess of Joseph's life, and the news for us this morning is God is in the midst of the mess of our lives too. God's in the midst of the mess of your life. God's in the midst of the mess of mine. Praise be. <laughs> whatever that mess might look like, whatever pit you may be at the bottom of, whatever jail cell you may be stuck in, God's in there with you. God is with you, beside you, upholding you, working in and through you. And it might not feel like it, and you might not know how it's all going to turn out, but God's there. Because it's in the midst of the mess where we find the greatest opportunities for God's grace and mercy to break through. And Joseph saw in the midst of famine the opportunity to do what God calls all of us to do. I think it's interesting that he says, God called me here to do something specific, to preserve life, to preserve life. And I think this is always the choice that we have. When it comes to forgiveness especially, we can either choose to preserve life, to open up other ways of relating and being, opportunities for forgiveness, for grace, for mercy, not undoing what's been done, not undoing the wrongs that have been perpetrated, but again, opening up the opportunity for new life and new growth. Or, 
we can close that off. Instead of preserving life, we can preserve death. We can let those things control us. I talked about this in my class this morning on uh, the right of reconciliation, on confession, about uh, the power that we find in naming our sins, of repenting, of turning back towards God, of finding hope and healing, because all of us carry around the weight of our sin. And sin doesn't just mean the heinous things that we do or the bad things that we do that we wish we didn't do. It also is the things that have been done to us that are hard sometimes to let go of. But Joseph's story is an example of what it looks like to find hope and healing in the midst of the mess of our lives, to preserve life, to offer grace and forgiveness, not to pretend that the past didn't happen, but to see how the past brings us to our present opportunities to choose another way. And we all have that same opportunity this morning. We all have the same opportunity for God to meet us here in this place, for, to, to offer up the things that weigh us down, to give those up, and to find hope, healing, and to preserve life. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. For service times or more information on St. Richard's, please visit strichards.org.